Like what is the relationship between space and identity, I guess I would say. Um, and how is that unique for people with intersecting identities, like the people who participate in BFNCO? So people who are Black, who are non-binary, who are women, who are trans, et cetera, queer. How does that like complicate how we sort of interact and how, you know, space informs how we see ourselves and vice versa? Welcome to Urban Limitrophe, a Toronto-based podcast exploring the global African experience by highlighting the various initiatives happening in cities across the African continent and occasionally the diaspora to creatively solve problems, support communities, create vibrant urban spaces, and build better cities overall. I'm your host, Alexandra, and join me as I explore this episode's topic. This episode is sponsored by the University of Toronto School of Cities. The School of Cities convenes urban-focused researchers, educators, students, practitioners, and the general public to explore and address complex urban challenges with the aim of making cities and urban regions more sustainable, prosperous, inclusive, and just. To learn more about their work, visit schoolofcities.utoronto.ca. This episode is also co-sponsored by the University of Toronto's Department of Geography and Planning. To learn more about their work and the different undergraduate and graduate programs available, please visit geography.utoronto.ca. One of the terms that I had to memorize for my final exam for one of my urban studies classes in undergrad was palimpsest. According to Google, a palimpsest is a manuscript or piece of writing material on which the original writing has been effaced to make room for later writing, but of which traces remain. As cities change and grow and shrink, traces of the past are often left behind in visible ways, like people and places and art, but also in invisible ways, such as in the stories and experiences of those who remain or are displaced. Some of these stories are captured and told, but most are often overlooked and forgotten. There are efforts being made to pay homage to these forgotten histories and cities around the world in very striking ways, like taking down statues and getting international recognition, like in the case of the Africville Museum in Halifax, Nova Scotia, that is trying to get Africville designated as a UNESCO heritage site. But also, it's happening in more subtle, but certainly no less impactful ways, like renaming streets and parks. Either way, at the heart of these changes is a passionate collective of people on a mission to right some wrongs, celebrate these overlooked histories, and empower the communities that these histories represent. This episode's guest, Black Futures Now Toronto, does just that. By using a mixture of virtual placemaking, storytelling, and radical mapping, and a whole lot of sheer creative talent, the collective is developing innovative and interactive ways of archiving, experiencing, and celebrating overlooked Black histories and geographies in the city of Toronto. Way back in November 2021, I met with the founder of Black Futures Now Toronto to learn more about the collective and how they built a virtual community center as part of their Mapping Black Futures initiative, a project which they state is one of the few that aims to honor the places across the greater Toronto area that hold significance for Black non-binary youth and women especially. To learn more about this multi-layered project, let's tune in. Uh, so my name is Adjo Afol. Um, I am the founder of Black Futures Now Toronto. Um, I have a background in urban planning, um, policy work, 
I founded Black Futures Now in uh, 2016, I want to say, around there, roughly around that time. Uh, that was also the date of our, our conference, our inaugural sort of conference. And that came uh, as a result of some work I was doing in grad school, where I was looking at basically sort of how young Black women um, were kind of translating their experiences as being um, Black women uh, in North America, um, but then also relating that to their experiences of being um, of West African descent. So that was like my main sort of focus. I also wanted, to, I was also interested at the time at um, looking at, the, at Toronto. I'm born and raised in Toronto. So this is the city I spent most of my life. And I've always been fascinated with how Toronto as a city kind of uh, has created various sort of, or I shouldn't say Toronto as a city, but communities in Toronto have created cells and specifically black communities and how black folks in Toronto relate to spaces and places in the city and how that impacts how they view themselves, their identities and how they relate to each other. So um, I was interested in, in all of that at the time and still am, <laughs> that hasn't gone away, uh, but I wasn't really seeing in my academic work or the work of my provided in my program, um, anything that reflected um, the urban experiences of young black people, especially women, uh, non-binary trans folks in the city. So I was really fascinated or really um, compelled to try to create um, my own space or not my own space, but a space where those kind of experiences could be shared. And so uh, that led to the creation of Black Futures Now, which was initially conceived as just a, a, a conference. We were, um, I initially opened it with like a, a partner at the time who's no longer with the uh, group, but we were inspired by other conferences in the city that um, wanted to center sort of like feminist uh, approaches to art and work, um, specifically the Feminist Art Conference in Toronto. So we kind of modeled initially our, our, our conference after that. And then from there, we were kind of brainstorming and thinking of ways to kind of keep Black Futures Now going. So we had smaller events. And then eventually we won a grant where we were able to enter into programming for the first time. And that led to the creation, and this was around 2000 in 19, 2020, I think. No, it had to be 2019 because the program ran in 2020. Mm -hmm. So that led to the uh, creation of Mapping Black Futures. And um, Mapping Black Futures is basically, like I said, our first foray into programming um, where we brought together young people from across the city who self-identified firstly as Black, and then also who um, may have identified as women, non-binary, gender non-conforming as well, trans. And so we brought them together to put together this, we called it, uh, or we call it, counter-mapping or radical mapping project, and which was supposed to serve as sort of like a community archival project as well as a storytelling project that um, highlighted spaces within the GTA that were of significance to um, the, the group that we put together and the communities to which they belong. Because like um, I mentioned earlier, our goal was to, has always been to um, create spaces or platforms where people can share their experiences of, you know, being Black um, and either sort of 
their interactions with space or their connection to space or their experiences around space, um, creating a platform where they can share that um, with each other and members of their broader communities. But I just wanted to backtrack a bit and I want to dive deeper into the Mapping Black Futures project. Let's go a bit deeper into like the origin story, but also uh, like there's different components to it. Like it's not just you've collected stories, but there's also a very, very cool <laughs> virtual community center as well. And so, yeah, if you could explain a bit about all the different components about this really cool project. Yeah, so the inspiration behind the Mapping Black Futures project broadly was um, we, so I had come across the Marvelous Grounds project. I don't know if you've seen that. Um, it's, it was put together by um, queer um, uh, people of color, community organizers, artists, so on, academics. Um, and a component of that was a story mapping project, which was basically like a crowd, like, like crowdsourced this data and where people would just, you know, like, you know, those like Google maps where how you have those like little pins or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they would create these pins, community members would create these pins and then just like fill it in with like, you know, as if they were like landmarks or sometimes they were, but <laughs> landmarks of like important events or moments in their lives that that space represents. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's a really cool idea. I was also learning at the time about like, um, you know, uh, planning and various planning tools. Um, and so I was interested in learning like how potentially these tools could be kind of taken up by um, Black young people in ways that are useful to them and in ways that kind of share their experiences. Whereas sometimes, you know, with the, given the history of planning, often these tools are used as ways to further marginalize particular communities. So I wanted to see if there was like a way to use these tools in a way that, that wouldn't perpetuate that. Um, and so when I came across this project that kind of seemed, uh, when I came across, came across Marvelous Grounds, that seemed like, you know, the beginning of a, a way for us to do that. They were modeling a way for us to do that. And then I came across other projects like Queering the Map was another one. Other uh, um, projects that were kind of like mapping police violence from the United States that were taking on like similar approaches to mapping. And I think the main project that we really were inspired by um, the Detroit Geographic Expedition. And they actually laid out, at least for me and for us, like a framework for what counter mapping or civic mapping, I think that's how they framed it. So map, civic mapping can, can achieve in what it is. And so their definition of that was just primarily they were concerned with this was a project that happened in the United States in Detroit in like, I believe the 1970s or 60s. And it was a, at the time, I think a, um, a geography grad student and like an 18 year old, like young um, black woman organizer in her community. And they came together and they brought other members of their community into the project. And these are people who maybe had, you know, prior to this experience hadn't had much opportunity to, you know, learn about cartography, learn about the ways in which cartography can be like um, useful to them. So I was really fascinated by the fact that they were using it as a tool to highlight racial injustices within their communities. And while I wouldn't say necessarily our purpose has always been like racial injustice highlighting, it's more so highlighting whatever kind of, or I wouldn't say whatever, but highlighting the ways in which space forms our identity and which vice versa our identities help inform how we interact with certain spaces. Um, it provided for us a very clear model for, for 
how to maybe get started on this project. So that's how that piece started. It was originally just a mapping piece. Um, but then, um, as I mentioned earlier, our project took place over 2020. So that it was also taking place during the pandemic. And so we had brought on like a web uh, developer um, at the time. Uh, their name is Shaq Singh and they're on our website. And they had been looking at they were really interested, interested, I believe, in like gaming culture and stuff like that. And you know, one of the mandates of this project is that we really wanted to make it interactive and we really wanted to create a way for broader, um, like people who weren't able to participate in this particular program could still somehow participate um, in the project and interact with each other through that project. And so they came up with the idea of creating a virtual community space that you navigate um, sort of like a game, so you would have like an avatar and all that, but then the avatars could also interact with each other. And, you know, it gave a, a way for young people involved in this project to conceptualize like different rooms that represented different facets of their experiences around blackness or not even just theirs, but um, aspects around being black and being based in Toronto that they wanted to highlight. So they got to use that also as a creative outlet for, you know, designing a space um, in virtual reality that they can't, that they wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity to do so obviously in real life. And so that's how the community center came along. And um, we used some of the data from the mapping project to kind of inform the how the design and the data that was included in the virtual community space. So that's how they sort of interact against each other. So um, we kind of saw that as like another way of like um, sharing some of the data that we collected for the mapping projects in a way that was a little bit more interactive for the broader community. So that's how that happened. I really like that this process, as you said, you're working with youth, is very participatory, uh, that there were some capacity building opportunities embedded within the actual mm -hmm. development of the, the final map and, and community center. So can you walk mm -hmm. us through like, the process of actually like collecting those stories and then collecting mm -hmm. those points with, with these uh, young people? So I would have to say it was like very much like a uh, I don't know how to frame it, but like a co-learning process in the sense that, you know, like I said, we had never done programming before. So we, you know, put together, you know, we had spent months planning everything and put together a curriculum and put together a plan. But then, you know, we learned very quickly that, you know, when you actually engage people, you have to sort of change up sort of how you approach things a little bit. Um, so I would say the youth were very instrumental in um, informing us and, um, I, most of the leadership were also youth as well, but they were really instrumental in informing us um, how to kind of approach the programming piece of it. So some of it was just sort of like, we had to, or me, I should say, I had to a lot of the times kind of lay out more clearly what sort of the goals of the project are uh, or were, are, um, how, like, what are some of the key concepts essentially um, around that. We also brought in uh, guest facilitators and speakers to help sort of flesh out some of those kind of more theoretical pieces that kind of inform the project as well. But then they also um, kind of gave us feedback in terms of like, A, what is feasible within the scope of this project, but then B, also what their, their interests were and what they were most 
like what they would primarily get out of this project. So there was a lot of back and forth and a lot of like kind of learning on our end, on the leadership end, my end, around like how to engage folks in this project. But yeah, I think in terms of the primary goals of the project, I mean, aspects of it were obviously capacity building. So mm -hmm. I think a lot of them, have, and some of them I should say were very experienced. Like they came in with like, you know, backgrounds in geography or whatever. So they had like a lot of experience around GIS. Some had some programming experience. Some had some graphic design and design in general experience. Others were writers or journalists in training. So they came in, I want to be clear, with like a lot of skills, <laughs> you know, within the group already. So mm -hmm. it wasn't like, you know, we were starting from like, like a purely kind of like a scratch level. But I think what ended up happening was that there was a lot of like, I don't know what the word is, but I think it's kind of like peer, peer education and that they were helping each other out essentially to build out this project. And then also kind of informing us what they envisioned, I guess, eventually um, the project to be. So it changed, I would say like the capacity building piece changed quite a bit over time from what we initially thought it would be, which was mostly the sort of like technology side um, and the programming side. And then we learned very quickly, that's not necessarily what they were most interested in. They were most interested in the community building, the some of the data collection pieces they were really into, the design pieces they were really into. So it changed to fit more so that than um, over the course of the project. Yeah, I really like that peer learning piece and that as much as the process. I should say the yeah. The peer learning piece was not from the peer learning piece, the way it played out was not how I had originally thought it would play out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I came more so from them kind of helping each other out throughout the projects. And so eventually, so I just wanted to say, like, I'm saying all that to give them like the full credit, right? Like they actually <laughs> kind of like created the, the, the peer learning piece in a way that I hadn't anticipated mm -hmm. um, when I was first planning out the project with some of the other leadership on the, the team. Um, but I think they eventually found it more impactful or engaging or compelling on their end because that was the part that they kind of were most so inventing throughout the project because the project that we had initially scoped out was quite structured mm -hmm. and it still was in the end, but it was very much restructured A, because of the pandemic, but B, because of, like I said, where we realized their interests were actually falling. Yeah, so there was that natural I guess, relationship building that kind of came between all the different parties. And so speaking of, I guess, relationships and spaces, um, there was these stories that were collected from these youth. And so I was wondering, like, what are some of the highlights of these stories shared so that people listening can get an idea of what they can, they can experience when they go to read them? So in, in the entirety of the project, I would say, um, I believe the number is like 11 to... Mm around 11 to like 15 youth were involved. Um, so I don't remember the exact number it's off, okay. my top, off the top of my head, but it's around that. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of the stories, so it's hard to speak of it in terms of stories because I would, I, I mean, maybe this is just like a me thing, but I see it more easily kind of described as like data because mm -hmm. the, the narratives were kind of created um, through the data or, or I shouldn't say created, but emerged through the data that was collected and the data varied. So some of the aspects of the map can like 
So we have like uh, sections dedicated to health and well-being and issues around like finding black practitioners, like doctors and stuff like that, or, or mental health services. And some of that data was done by one of our participants through like a survey, a survey mm-hmm. collected, like just a community survey that they did. And they kind of organized the data accordingly through like with the help of um, our project coordinator through like infographics and stuff like that. So that was one way of telling like a story. Other stories were honestly historical projects. <laughs> so um, one person looked into, created a room that was dedicated to, I believe they're called Dami, which was like a, le- a black lesbian group founded in Toronto. That was um, a mutual aid group, a community group that supported other black queer folks in I think the eighties or nineties and whose work is, kind of hard to find but then they dedicated a room that kind of just collected their stories through like photos and quotes and like news art paper articles or whatever from that time magazine articles so that's one another did live interviews where they created this beautiful salon where they interviewed black barbers and I think hairstylists that you can actually see like if you click on there's a sort of tv in the uh, hair salon if you click on that you actually see youtube videos playing of those interviews. So it's hard to highlight like the stories just because they were all so different and they cover so many aspects of like black life, black queer life, black young female life, black, you know, non-binary and trans life in ways that are as diverse, I guess, as the participants in the program. Yeah, I, I like what you're saying about the data <laughs> from yeah. the data and points emerged these stories and they all kind of manifested in different ways as they were exactly. collected in different ways. Yeah, like so I would say with the data piece, like also to like, um, I guess what, sort of the long-winded way I was kind of trying to say that it's like a lot of the times how the stories or the, the narratives that emerged from them came also too from like the methodology in which they were collected, right? Mm-hmm. So you're going to get a potentially a different story from the survey data versus doing interviews, which is more sort of like qualitative stuff um, or journalistic kind of stuff, or you're going into the more historical route as mm-hmm. some others did, or just doing sort of like more straight up like interviews that are like written out so it it really it's really hard to highlight that but I would say like one area of the project that really encapsulates that level of diversity would be the community center just because of how individual and specific the rooms are and how they also reflect the both the ways in which data collected who they collected data from and how the narratives emerge through that data. And so the participants the youth participants they all use these different methodologies to collect these stories and collect yeah. this data and then represent it differently. So is that part of the like programming? Because I know you mentioned at the beginning that you had like um, like a program coordinator, you had like facilitators yeah. who came in to speak with them. So how did that, I, I'm just wondering how they came up with all these diverse ways of collecting this information. In <laughs> Again, order to I wanna, yeah. so, so we gave them kind of carte blanche on like how to do, because like I said, initially it was just gonna be the map. So the map was just sort of like, you guys do your research on these specific areas, you bring them back, that back, and then we figure out a way to represent that visually through the map. But then when the community center was introduced into the project, that kind of changed it up quite a bit. So they were kind of, um, again, I want to give credit to the youth involved, they kind of came up with their own methodology. So a lot of them, like I said, they came in with their own skill sets. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some of them who had like a journalistic background was like, I just want to do interviews. Some of them who had, and we, and obviously our goal was to support them in doing that. So they, we tried to connect them with folks that they needed help making connections. Our project coordinator, um, 
Aisha, they talented in many things, but one of them is photography. <laughs> so they would help out with photography and graphic design for the infographics. So we would support them in, the, in those ways, but they basically kind of came up with the methodology based on what it is that they wanted to share in the project. Okay, so yeah, it was really about letting their talents, <laughs> these collective talents and knowledge and expertise shine through. Yeah, yeah. And I think that was also like a lesson for me because like um, I can be like very much like of a planner and I'm like, okay, we have our set rule. Like, you know, this is how we decided to do it and we should follow whatever. And then they were like, we have thoughts. <laughs> so we had to figure out a way to, you know, incorporate some of their thoughts. But in the end, we got, I think, a much more, like, like I said, like um, the project very much exceeded whatever I had envisioned for it initially. And I think what we had originally planned for initially, just because they came out with all of their own creativity and all also their own interpretations of some of the themes that we were trying to address to this project and also some of the goals of the project. So yeah, I mean, in the end, it made it a lot better, essentially. And so um, now that the like the stories are online and, and the community centers um, you know accessible through the website, I was wondering what was the um, like response from I guess the broader community from those who've used the virtual community center or those who've read the stories. You, what kind of feedback you've heard from people who've experienced the mapping Black Futures project? Uh, it's been overwhelmingly like really really positive, which is mm -hmm. really really nice. I mean, we're a very small collective. We're very loose in that our leadership changes depending on the project. Mm -hmm. um, basically, like the one constant in the the group. Mm -hmm. But I think you know one of the things that's been nice um, is we've had some continued contact with like a lot of the people who were in, involved with the Mapping Black Futures project through other projects that we've kind of put together and and in a smaller capacity. I know that a lot of them are still kind of in contact with each other, which is really nice. And that was also one of the goals of the project, but they feel mm -hmm. that they've created a space where they can make connections and network with, the, with peers and other people who are interested in the type of community building and organizing that they are. We also had like a launch virtual party last year. And when the map was, um, when the whole project was ready to kind of go public and we had an overwhelming response of people just participating or who attended the virtual party and who stayed for the duration of it, which is an indicator of how interested people were. We also have been given like opportunities to speak on this project in other avenues and, and partner with other like universities as a result of that or, or other projects that are similar to ours um, as a result of that, which has been really great. We also got a lot of amazing response and feedback in our social media. Mm -hmm. um, as a result of this work and how people were really interested in uh, the community centerpiece and how it was, like I said, like very reflective of sort of like a video game and that allowed them to interact with it in ways that were compelling to them. So yeah, and we just got like a bunch of like really nice emails from folks in the community who either attended the event or used the program and who were just like, or not program, sorry, but, you know, had kind of gone through the project on, online and were just really into it. So yeah, I think that's been the response overall. I think the key thing, which again, like I said, wasn't my idea, um, <laughs> was the fact that like the community center kind of added that much needed interactive piece to the project for sure. Yeah, I mean, I'll agree that's what initially kind of like caught my eye about yeah. this project in particular, because it was like, I first of all didn't really understand what a 
like, how could you have a community center online at first? You know, when yeah. I first saw it, I was like, what's that? <laughs> and I clicked on it and then you enter and then like the app, like I wasn't expecting to have to make an avatar. And I was like, okay, what am I going to wear? Who am I? <laughs> and then I, love I, that. I feel like that's what it would have been like. Yeah. I think too, like, I mean, one of the things like, uh, or I call them themes and I, I take on like a very kind of like sometimes like researchy type approach to this stuff but I call them themes because like one of the things we want to explore with this project and, and this was uh, something that came up in our many many discussions with the, the youth that we were involved in it's just the idea of like Toronto being a space that a lot of us call home but then don't necessarily feel at home in and that when we do have and then when I say us I mean black folks right mm-hmm. especially young black you know like I said uh, non-binary people, queer people, women, etc. Right? There aren't many spaces that are just dedicated to us, or that we feel comfortable in number on mass occupying in any way. Right? Um, and there are very complex reasons for that. But one of that has to do with, like, you know, the way the city um, has been gentrified over you know, especially in the last like few years and how a lot of spots that people highlighted in the project in the community center even have been completely, and that may have historical or just even communal significance to a lot of black folks here have been kind of gotten rid of. Like one person, um, one of our participants designed a piece around um, Honest Eds. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Honest Eds has a lot of meanings to various communities in Toronto, to various folks in Toronto, but Honest Eds was also in what used to be, I believe, uh, was like, sort of um, a kind of hub for black community, uh, for black folks in like the 80s and 70s. And it was called like the Black Eaton Center for a really long time. And now that space is gone. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. one of the appeals of the community center is that it highlights those histories, but then it offers in virtual kind of space, what is hard to come by in real life. And I feel like that's the kind of, thing like that's what compels a lot of people to participate in that um part of the project and then hopefully that you know also engages them to explore other aspects of the website and the project as well and that's a perfect segue to my next question which was really trying to understand the I guess, theories behind this project and about understanding first of all like when we last spoke you had introduced me to this idea of radical mapping and what it yeah, yeah. looks like but then also this idea of like trying to understand why is mapping and archiving and curating these stories and these places that hold such meaning, you know, for the black community, particularly these black non-binary youth and women, well, like, why is that so important? So if you could dive a bit deeper into that, that'd be great. Why mapping and archiving is important. I mean, I think, you know, I think my answer has changed over time around mm-hmm. that. Like, I think if I, if you were talking to me like about a, like a couple of years ago, I would say, well, it's important to kind of archive, you know, various histories, uh, black histories in the city, because it's so difficult to come across those in mm-hmm. sort of more mainstream institutions. And that's mm-hmm. still very much the case. Like it, I mean, I think there've been efforts to improve that. And there've always been folks who have been working to kind of um, provide those spaces. Like there's, um, a different book list that's been around for a lot a while that works as like and it's actually really close to where honest eds used to be but they've been working for a while to be a community hub to offer like you know programming in addition to like selling books that are you know um for black um um folks in toronto and also broader more people of color but i do think uh, initially that was my whole thing my whole imperative is like there's 
all these connections and histories and experiences around space and body and, and, and blackness and being uh, embodying a certain body, I guess, mm -hmm. that is kind of lost and they're, uh, you know, and I know, like I, um, I think I mentioned earlier on in my own work, um, like my, my work in sort of like my kind of personal investments are very much tangled up with each other. And so um, I was having a hard time kind of doing the kind of work that I wanted to do academically and professionally, in part because I wasn't finding these um, materials. So I wanted to, I didn't think we would solve it through this project, but I wanted to highlight this kind of gap, you know what I mean? Uh, while at the same time too, not just making it all about lack, making it also about sort of like, um, a recognition or even like a, a kind of like acknowledgement of all this work that's already being done and that's always being done by black people in Toronto that you know doesn't necessarily get um, acknowledged um, elsewhere. But I think now um, as I've moved on I think I have a much more um, complicated relationship and understanding to how archives work and how documenting things in certain ways work and sort of like a more kind of nuanced understanding of how, for instance, you know, in creating these spaces, you also leave yourself sometimes open to um, the negatives of that, especially online. I think, you know, you probably know like how, you know, embodying like online spaces with virtual spaces as like a black person is very different than it is for other groups, right? You're mm -hmm. much more susceptible to attack, criticism, that kind of thing. And there's also the issue of maintenance that is also embedded in privilege where, you know, um, if you are doing work that is kind of archival in nature or trying to document anything and you don't have the uh, support of like larger mainstream organizations. I mean, we did have this grant, but we don't have like ongoing supports, um, then it becomes difficult to keep those things going, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then also if you do accept those, those supports, then it's like you do have to kind of sometimes change the, the goals or, or, or how your project kind of, um, mm -hmm. what you can do within your project, I guess, yeah. right? So there's all these kind of like complex questions now that I have around sort of like what does archival work actually do that um, I think changes maybe sort of how I would answer your question. Uh, so I'm explaining why I'm can't, I can't really answer your question after <laughs> a long kind of discussion about these other, these other uh, you know, aspects of doing this work that kind of complicate it. No, that's fair. I mean, it was a big question. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack there. And yeah. I don't think of any one particular um, uh, specific good answer around this theme. So I, I think I, I would I would say that like where I land now is like, I think it's important to do this work because it's a value to the people who are doing this work and to the communities they're trying to do this work with. You know what I mean? So I think there is a value, like the youth who we engage um, it feels weird to just call them like the youth as if they're like this one like group. <laughs> but the people who we engaged in this project who brought in, like I said, all these skill sets, um, they, like I said, highlighted for us what was important to them and what they thought was important to, to highlight. And I think the fact that there are people like, you know, who think that these uh, stories or this data or this content is important to share is a lot of times enough to justify 
documenting it and its existence. So that's what I would say now. Um, I would say it's there and important because the people who create it think it's important that it's there. Recognizing the importance of um, celebrating these lesser known histories and spaces and supporting placemaking for diverse communities, what kind of supports or whether these be like policies or like partnerships, do you think that cities like the city of Toronto should offer like groups like yourself to help continue this work and um, amplify more voices in this way? Honestly, um, I thought about this a lot and I, I don't have a really good answer for that. Because like I said, it's kind of connected to some of the other kind of nuances I was kind of trying to hint at, or not hint at, but trying to articulate earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know to be, like I, I like one of the things about our, our collective or our project or BFNTO that I like is that it's not, for instance, like a nonprofit, right? It's not, for instance, like part of a, I mean, don't get me wrong, we, we're not completely removed from that sector. Like we benefit and we receive a grant from that sector. So we're embedded for sure, but um, not being like, for instance, a nonprofit gives us a lot of freedom to do the kind of work and take our work in the directions that we have, right? I'm not saying that you necessarily wouldn't be able to do that. Um, embedded in sort of more kind of like, um, embedded in like an institution, you know, like the city or, you know, other organizations. But um, for now, like that has, I think, been one of the reasons why we're so flexible and nimble as like a, a group, right? Mm-hmm. I also do think too, like I, I would want us to have as much freedom to explore whatever issues we think is relevant to our members and to the communities they belong to. So I'm not saying like we would be censored or anything like that, but I do mm-hmm. think there is a certain amount of freedom that comes with not being um, a nonprofit in, in that sense. Um, and so I say all that because then I don't know how that might change when you bring in like the city or, or various sort of agencies or, 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 or organizations into it because we're not, um, we're not like a service organization in the sense that we're trying to like, you know, help alleviate like, you know, homelessness or something like that, right? Um, our, our goals are a little bit like um, more theoretical, right? So I think in our case, yeah, I, I don't know. I still haven't figured out how to answer that question. No, that's fine. Oh, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I mean, every time I ask this question, I get different <laughs> versions, <laughs> different versions that really apply to everyone's unique context. So basically what I'm hearing from you is that like you're kind of like a collective less so than like a formal kind of nonprofit network. Like you said, you're not really tied to a particular kind of like goal in that sense, as you were saying, like addressing homelessness, it's more about kind of like a celebration. um, And I would even say like a celebration, I would say more of like an, (laughs) this is gonna sound so pretentious and I hope it doesn't. (laughs) I would say more of like an an exploration or engagement of, Mm -hmm. you know, specific questions around what does it, what is the what are some of the experiences of being black um, in Toronto and engaging with various spaces? Like, what is the relationship between space and identity? I guess I would say, mm-hmm. um, and how is that unique for people with intersecting identities, like the people who participate in BFNTO? So, people who are black, who are non-binary, who are women, who are trans, etc., queer. How does that like complicate how we sort of interact? and how, you know, space informs how we see ourselves and vice versa. So I would say that is sort of the main, that I would say there's like a thread of what 
BFNTO uh, is interested in mapping Black futures, is interested in engaging with, that would be that thread. So that's why I'm like, it's kind of very unique. Like it's different for us when it comes to how that might interact with policy, because we aren't like, you know, we are trying to engage with sort of more of like, I guess potentially like questions around being and belonging. That's kind of harder to engage with, you know, more kind of blunt policy measures. Does that make sense? Or po policy tools or initiatives or whatever. I understand. You're focusing more. It's kind of the intangibles <laughs> of like the city, these like yeah. in-between spaces. Yeah. 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 But also very important, important spaces though of, of of belonging. I think that's something that everyone's been thinking about, particularly with the pandemic and being well, that's isolated. Yeah, I think the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic has been awful. Let's be totally like upfront about that. But yeah. it has, I think, for at least myself and I think other members of BFNTO, crystallized for us like the importance of like engaging with these kind of questions, um, especially since like so much of our lives are lived outside of the spaces we've been normally occupy now, or maybe more so depending on like, you know, what your life was before the pandemic. And so um, looking towards the future of <laughs> Black Futures Now Toronto, that yeah. wasn't an intended pun, but <laughs> even, even, if it, even if it was, that was fine. Like I love puns, <laughs> I'm a fan, so. <laughs> Um, but I want to know <laughs> what's next for um, what is next for this collective. Um, what are, I know you have some projects underway, so yeah, great time to share them. Yeah, I think one of the nice things about this theme is that it's an expansive theme, and like I said, it's very much embedded in like again. I always feel again kind of pretentious when I say storytelling, but it is kind of that. <laughs> uh, I just do. It is what it is. Um, but like, uh, and so I guess one of the things is like looking what's in our future is looking into different mediums for expanding the kind of um, stories that we started to tell through the Mapping Black Futures project. And so our next big project, I think I may have mentioned this to you before, is that we're um, working on a podcasting project um, where we're working with two um, young uh, podcasters, emerging podcasters and journalists who are exploring, again, our, our theme of Blackness, queerness and um, black geographies in the GTA. So uh, that's called, uh, the podcast is called Displace. So mm -hmm. it's like apostrophe D-I-S and then place. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a bit of a play on the slang in Toronto, but then also sort of like feelings of belonging and not belonging in certain spaces as well. Um, and, um, so that's kind of the more immediate thing. And this is our first again foray into sort of um, audio storytelling in this form, in this, in this way. Mm -hmm. um, and then beyond that, yeah, like I said, it's um, looking to expand upon what we started in Mapping Black Futures through other kind of like media projects, which, you know, stay tuned if you want to learn more about that. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited to listen in <laughs> when it's uh, yeah. when it's live. <laughs> and then, so how can people, like just regular everyday people get involved and support you know, Black Futures Now Toronto? Uh, so I would say uh, we do have a, a newsletter. So you can uh, sign up for our newsletter and you can also just follow us through our social media. So we are on Instagram, we are on Twitter, we're on 
surprisingly still Facebook. Um, so <laughs> we're, we're there. <laughs> so follow us there to find out what we're doing next, how they can maybe next get involved in our next projects. We announce everything uh, through those channels. So, and, and you can always just send us like a, a good old fashioned email too, if you just want to know what's up. Thanks for listening to this episode. To learn more about Black Futures Now Toronto and their Mapping Black Futures project, their Displaced podcast, and all of their other great work, please visit www.blackfuturesnow.to. This episode was edited by Hannah Ahamedi. The music was produced by Imani Lambropoulos. And the episode direction, research, and graphic design was done by yours truly. For this episode's show notes and other resources, make sure to visit www.urbanlimitrofe.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media to stay up to date and stay tuned for new episodes coming your way. Until next time.